It's good to be in person with some of you and the rest of you on Zoom. Uh, it's been such a long time since I think we've, I've preached in person in many ways. It's kind of weird. Uh, I'm used to just looking into one spot. Now I'm going to have to scan a lot more. Uh, but I am looking forward to next week where we will be free of Zoom. Um, we'll once again be gathering in person as a whole family. Um, and make sure you plan to be there and plan to be there every other week um, because it is actually vital for your health uh, more than anything else. Um, so today we're, um, we're going to be looking at the second uh, half of chapter 6 of Romans. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 15. Uh, and you can read along with me. Uh, and then we'll discuss uh, the second half of Romans chapter 6. Verse 15 says this, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under the grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offered yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from those things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit reaps leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me just pray for us uh, as we get started. Our Father, we thank you uh, that we get to have your word. We thank you that we get uh, to think about it this morning. We thank you that we get to gather in person in smaller groups and, and that we'll get to gather as a family next week. Father, pray that your spirit would speak through your word and you'd speak through me today. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin to think about these verses, just for context um, here, what the Spirit has been teaching through Paul in Romans chapter 6 is really the, the answer to the question of how do people who have been justified by grace through faith defeat sin? How do we defeat sin is really a question that every human tries to answer in one form or another, whether they realize it or recognize it at all. Everyone on this planet has some system that they try to do to cheat death. Many live by some moral code, list of rules, or, or some other kind of do it by attempting to enjoy every bit of life. Some do it by working out, eating healthy so they can live a long life. Um, actually, even just yesterday, uh, Jess was putting this concoction into her orange juice that she usually does. And, and Jocelyn and I were sitting there and Jocelyn says, Mom, if you drink that nasty stuff, you're still going to die. So what's the purpose? <laughs> I mean, it maybe was a little bit more flamboyant than that. But um, so taking care of your body is a whole other discussion. Um, but in some ways, she's right. Death is inevitable because sin 
is a battle that everyone is fighting, whether we recognize it or not. And so, so far in Romans, Paul has been teaching the truth that the only way that you defeat sin is by grace through faith in Jesus. The problem is that often, I think, that rubs up against our hearts as we've been, we've been in fight mode since we were born. And for someone to say, the way to win the battle against sin is to do nothing. There's this tension, it's, it's this idea of, a, of like a soldier who uh, is sitting there, they have their weapon in their hand, and the enemy is running at them. And the enemy is running at them to kill them. And the officer behind him says, just sit there and let him attack. That's how we're going to win. It, it doesn't feel right. It, it goes against everything that we've been taught in our culture and everything we've been striving to do since we were born. You see, the news of grace will either give you freedom or it will look like utter foolishness. Now, for the followers of Jesus, whose sin actually has been defeated on the cross and through the resurrection, this question of defeating sin actually has a second layer. We know that, that sin is ultimately defeated, but the question now becomes, how do we live in this new reality? How do we live in this body and in this world that's still riddled with the effects of sin? How do we, as, as people who have been justified by grace, now live is what Paul is actually addressing in this passage. He isn't addressing the question of salvation. He's, a, he's addressing the second question. What do we do next once we've been saved to defeat sin in this present reality? Now back in, in Paul's day, um, there was a Jewish uh, traditionalist that, that basically argued this same argument that we see in our culture even right now. And we see from every other religion, really, that the argument is if we reject the law, as a way of salvation. If, if you don't do good works to earn salvation, then, then all the other vices and all other evil will actually follow. Basically, the only way to righteousness is to do righteous acts. But, but Romans has been telling us it doesn't work that way. It tells us actually that doing good things, living under a law, living under a set of rules, doesn't produce righteousness. It actually condemns us because no human is able to do it 100% of the time. And so God teaches it's, it's only when we're delivered from the law, we're delivered from the law in Jesus, and we're joined to Jesus, we actually are empowered to do what the law requires. In the first half of chapter 6, which Jared discussed last week, Paul explains to the followers of Jesus that, that we're not under the law, but we're under grace. And, and being under grace doesn't lead to sin because we've been joined to Jesus. It's the idea that, that since we're joined with Jesus, sin, sin is in the past. It's behind us. Sin is, sin is in the past. There's no place for us to go except to live a life of righteousness, live in a righteous manner because it's actually who we are. We aren't sinners anymore. We're actually declared righteous. Now in the section that I just read today, and the section that we're going to look at more, Paul addresses the, basically a second objection from the group of people who rejected the way of salvation, um, but took it a step further and rejected the law as an expression of proper conduct. And I want to say this lie is still alive in our culture and in the church. 
maybe you have thought about this or, or think about it right now or, uh, or have thought about it in the past. Honestly, in my own walk, I had this same thought that, that if Jesus covers all my past, all my present and future sins, then why can't I just do whatever I want in the moment? If I, if I do the right things, I'll, I'll be called a good Christian. But if I do the bad things in the end, I'll be a bad Christian. But it doesn't really matter because I'll get to go to heaven. So what's the point of doing anything that's righteous? I'm free. I'm, I'm totally free. I can do whatever I want. Now, if you follow church history, uh, Martin Luther uh, actually talks about this and he eventually termed the name for this, and I'm just going to screw it up, um, Anti-Nominians, as I think that's how you say it, uh, to describe the people that believe this untruth. Now, this, this person would say, since we're free from the law, we can do whatever we want. We're, we're free to go on as sin as much as we want, and because it doesn't matter, because we're under grace anyway. God covers it all, which is true in some sense. But it's also a false understanding that Christianity is simply a group of ideas for the future and not a present experience of the preciousness of Christ. You see, contrary to, to popular belief, there's no such thing as absolute freedom. No human is free to do anything he or she wants to do. There's only one being in the entire universe who is actually completely free, and that's God. Everyone else is limited by or enslaved by something or someone. In fact, to be a human is to be a servant. I know we've talked about this in the past, uh, maybe you remember, but in Philippians 2, where, Jesus, uh, where it talks about Jesus coming to earth as a man, it says this in verse 7, it says that he took on the form of a servant. And actually, uh, in Greek, it's actually the form of a slave. He took on the form of a slave. Thus, to be human is to be a slave. And the truth is, that's who we are. We are slaves. There is no absolute autonomy. None at all. Adam and Eve were not even autonomous. You and I are not autonomous. As humans, you are a slave. You're either a slave uh, to sin or a slave to Jesus. That's the only two categories. The question really becomes, who or what are you serving? By how you're living your life, what does your life declare is your servant master? Who is your slave master? You see, the good news that being a slave to Jesus is, is that it's actually true freedom. Not, not freedom in the sense that you're autonomous, but freedom in the sense of a life filled with complete joy. You see, in verse 15, Paul answers this false thought that we can just do whatever we want emphatically. He says, shall we sin because we're under the law? Um, uh, because we're not under the law, but under grace? He says, by no means. Basically, it's foolish to think you can live however you want. Why? Because verse 16 says you've been freed from the law. Not, not to become autonomous creatures, which is impossible, but we've been freed from the law to become slaves to God. Thus, we're, we're slaves to righteousness now. Now, I know when I say slaves, even as I've said that by 15, 20 times now, it kind of rubs our hearts wrong. 
We don't like that word. We don't like the notion that we're slaves. But it is a reality. You and I are slaves to something. And please know that sin is slavery. The lie that Satan presented Adam and Eve with in the garden was one of freedom. Freedom from God's word. But it wasn't actually freedom. It was slavery to something else. Merely attaching the word freedom to sin, I'm free to go do whatever I want, doesn't make sin a way of liberation. Sin is bondage. It enslaves us and it holds us in its grasp. It's, it's this idea, if you give away to greed, you will be a slave to your possessions. If, if you give away to sexual passions, you'll become a slave to those passions. If you give away to anger, you'll be a slave to those you're angry with. And the same is true with every other sin. They equal bondage. The only freedom that sin offers is actually the freedom to die. Because sin leads to death. Verse 16 tells us that. It says this, You are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, if you go back to the, to the dialogue, if you think back to the dialogue in Genesis 3, God said to them, if you obey, disobey, if you eat the fruit, you will die. And what does Satan says? The devil says, you will surely not die. Who was right? Who should they believe? Well, Adam and Eve, they concluded that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, that it was desirable for wisdom. So how could it be wrong when it felt so right? And so they ate it. And what happened? They died. Instantly, their spirits died. The relationship they had enjoyed with God was broken. Their personalities immediately started to decay. They started to lie. They started to shift blame. Their bodies also began to deteriorate, and eventually they physically died. Adam and Eve are not here anymore, just in case you don't know that. Don't believe the lie that sin is harmless. And don't trust your own judgment on these matters. You and I do not have more ability to correctly judge than Adam and Eve did. The truth is, the only one who has a perfect track record for telling the truth is God. And he said the same thing from the very beginning. It hasn't changed. Sin equals death. See, the reality is, and the older I get, I, I see this more and more, that we are dying physically. But in Jesus, we don't con uh, just continue um, to sin because our spirits now have actually been given life. Our spirits are alive. You have been set free from slavery and you've become a slave to righteousness now. Which is why I think Paul breaks out in this doxology in verses 17 through 18 and he realizes the, the magnitude of that, of that truth. And he says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You see, the same work that is delivered followers of Jesus from 
since slavery has also made them slaves to God, which is what verse 22 says as well. By his act of redemption, Jesus has purchased men and women for himself, not to make them autonomous, but purchased them in order that they would serve him. Now, at first thought, this might not sound that great. Right? What advantage is it to be freed from one slavery just to become a slave of another? You may say, what is the point of that? What's the gain? Well, even if, if we were slaves physically and we were set free from a cruel master to become slaves of the one uh, who was kind, that would be an upgrade, which is part of the picture God is saying here because God is good, he is kind, he is a loving master, but, but it's way more than that. Because the Bible teaches that God's slavery actually brings freedom. Not the license to do anything we want, but true freedom. And true freedom is the ability to fulfill one's destiny and one's purpose. That's what true freedom actually is. Which is exactly what Jesus taught prior to this when he was talking to the religious leaders. If you go back to John chapter 8, um, verses 31 and 32, he said, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So these religious leaders responded. In verse 33, they answered him and they said, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Which really wasn't true. They kind of forgot that most of their life they had been slaves. I mean, even just like they've been slaves in Egypt. Um, but instead of reminding them of the truth of these facts, and Jesus answers, he replies in 34, he says, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What Jesus is saying is there's only two types of slavery to choose from. There's slavery that leads to death, and there's slavery that leads to life. And the only real freedom you are ever going to know in this life and the life to come is the freedom of serving Jesus. And it means a life of righteousness. Anything else is a life of slavery, regardless of what that thing or someone else may promise you. You see, when you become a follower of Jesus, you have been liberated from sin in order that you might become a servant of God. And the life of a servant of God leads to what God desires, which is a life of righteousness rather than a life of continuing in sin. Which I think is why Paul uses this word obedience three times in this section. You see, the function of a slave is to obey his or her master. But this term obedience goes, goes beyond that because obedience is actually an essential requirement to all who actually follow Jesus. I told guys earlier that I was going to use James Boyce. He's a theologian from Philly. Um, he's dead now, but he was a great guy. And he was around when I was there. Uh, but anyway, uh, James Boyce says this, Obedience is the very essence of believing. It is what belief is all about. You see, as you think about faith in God, I think it has three elements. There's, there's an intellectual element. We, we must believe the information about the gospel. We must believe the information about who God is and what he's done. And then there's, there's an emotional element where the content of that information touches our hearts deeply 
and we, we truly desire and see how gracious he has been. And then there's a third element, an element of commitment, where we actually give ourselves to Jesus in discipleship. It's in this third element where obedience is critical. Because if obedience is not present, if we, if we don't actually have a commitment to God, it's actually evidence that we have not fully believed in Him. That we may not actually be saved by grace. Now this is not some new concept here. It's been the same throughout the whole story of the Bible. Biblical characters have been marked by their obedience or lack thereof. Probably the most famous example of that was the faith of Abraham. He's actually mentioned uh, four times in Hebrews because of that. And actually earlier in, in Romans chapter 4, there's something with the fours, I don't know, but he's an example of faith. And if you look at the high point of Abraham's life in faith, was when God told him to sacrifice his son Isaac, the son of promise, the son that, that he had waited for many, many, many years. And what's interesting is if you look at Genesis chapter 22 where the story of Abraham is told and praised by God. He's praised by God not for faith, but for obedience. In, in Genesis 22:16, it says this, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, this is God speaking, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the city of their enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will, earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Because you have obeyed me. It's the act of obedience that demonstrated his faith. You see, there's no escaping it. Either we're going to obey sin and be enslaved by it, or we're going to be freed from sin to serve and obey God which is what Paul repeats over and over and over again here. And he, he gives us this analogy in, in, chat, in verses 19 through 22, and he kind of rhetorically asks this question. He says, who are you going to serve? Who will you serve, sin or God? There's nothing in between. There's no neutral ground. There's, there's one or the other, and that's Paul's point. And I think the, it's a question that we need to seriously consider ourselves. Consider in our own hearts. Do you actually believe that? Do you believe you can either only serve sin or God? Do we believe this truth? If we, I think if we understood it and really believed it, um, would we sin as frequently as we, as, we, as we do or easily as we do? Would we take sin as, as lightly and as casually would, would, our, would we casually just pursue righteousness if we truly believe that we are actually slaves to God? See, in this passage in Romans, the Spirit is really exhorting Christians to take action to do the work to live holy lives. In verse 19, he says, Take the parts of your bodies that you used to use um, in slavery to impurity and use them now for holy action. Use them for holy action. He says the same thing prior to this in verse 13. He says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. 
You see, God is calling us to strive to do good works. Not as a way of salvation, but in obedience to our new master. And the only way that you can do that is to realize the depth of what God has done and then discipline your mind, your heart, your eyes, your tongue, your hands, and every other part of your body to act accordingly to what God has already done in you. See, I sense that we, we love this idea of grace, but when it comes to discipline, we don't really like it. We don't want to do it. I've, I've heard this said many times, oh, well, the Spirit has to change me. Yeah, but how the Spirit changes you is through obedience and actively doing the daily work of discipline in your life. There was a time, I don't look like it anymore, uh, but I spent a lot of time in the gym. And uh, I used to work out every day, and, and anyone who goes to the gym or has been to the gym will, will tell you this is true. And, and when you go to the gym, there's different types of people there. And they're in every gym. Every gym I've ever been in, doesn't matter. They always have the same kind of people. There's the, the New Year's and swimsuit crowd who would show up in January or show up in June. It would kind of swell up with their new outfits on. It would work out at some feverishly pace for about a month and then be gone until next January or next time they were going on vacation. So you have that group. You have the, I want to call them the looky-loos or, or, or the, 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 on, the, on the prowl crowd. Who, who spend most of their time in front of the mirrors. They work out a little bit, get a little bit of sweat on, then they just kind of walk around because everyone looks better once they're sweating. Right? They're there to pick someone up or have people look at them. You have the aimless. Right? You have the people who, who walk around, they, they do one exercise in every section, but they really have no plan. And, they, and after you've seen them there for months, nothing has changed. Right? And then... You have the faithful few who, regardless of, of what category you were in when you walked into that gym, you knew who they were. They had a plan. They were there every day. They, they knew each other. And when you saw them, you said, man, when I turn 50, when I turn 60, when I turn 70, I want to be like that. I, I want to go work out next to them so that I can learn something from them. You could tell that they had a life long time of consistency and diligence. And I want to tell you, the same people are in the church. And spiritual muscles don't grow overnight. They take daily working out of your salvation and living in obedience to Jesus. You see, we live in a culture that is um, that you and I are personally affected by. And we desire quick fixes. We look to quick solutions uh, for our physical or emotional lives. And so if we get depressed or, or we're tired, we, we just numb ourselves by binge-watching Netflix. Or, or maybe we, we go shopping. Or maybe we, we just consume something else, some food or some alcohol. Rather than, rather than doing the, the hard work of actually getting in the gym to get in shape, we, we look to five-minute abs or, or quick diets or, or surgeries or, or steroids or something, Right? But as Christians, I want to say, we, if we want better results in our lives, we must struggle to get fit. And it takes more than an hour gathering every week. 
It takes more than a, than a one-hour family dinner. It's just too much for us to put in our schedules. Family, there is no clear secret formula for defeating sin in your life. There's no quick fix. It's only the realization that in Jesus, you've already received all things that you need to live a life of godliness. And then it's doing the hard work of disciplining yourself and daily putting those things into practice. You must get into the biblical gym. You have to work out obedience to Jesus. You see, the command to yield uh, your parts to your bodies as instruments of righteousness is based on something that has already happened to you. If you look at all the significant verbs in Romans chapter 6, you will find that they are all past tense. They describe an experience uh, that is true of all followers of Jesus, and they describe them in the terms of something that has already happened. You see, throughout the whole New Testament, the approach to being freed from sin is simply to get us to realize our position in Christ and then act accordingly. It never tells us to be something. Rather, it comes and tells us who we are and who we are, and it says, live according to that. Live in that new identity that has already been changed in you. And quite honestly, it's a completely reasonable demand. Before we were slaves, we had no power or no reason to serve God or do good acts. And so we serve sin. But when Jesus paid the ransom for your life and mine, and he says, now serve me, it's a very reasonable request. It's why Paul can say in verse 19, offer yourself, your bodies as slaves to righteousness. Because if we continue living a sinful life, and we, our life is actually inconsistent with who you are. We'll wait for the plane. Dr. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, The failures we have in trying to live a holy life are due almost entirely to our failure to realize the truth of God or our laziness in applying them to our lives. I think we need to seriously consider our lives and ask, how disciplined are we? Are we living in obedience or are we lazy in our walk with God? Paul concludes this section with, with a reminder and really the motivation and the power behind obedience. And he says this in verse 23. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a very familiar verse probably to, to many people. But I sense when we hear this familiar verse, um, the contrast between death and it becomes really eternal life in our mind. And immediately we think about when we leave this earth and when we get to spend time with Jesus in heaven. And while that is true and it's important and provides a great hope, that's only part of the picture here. Remember that this verse right here is in the context of Paul writing about the present life of a believer. And Paul is stressing that we've been freed from sin and slavery in order to serve God. Thus, it's not just about eternal life when life ends and death. It's also about the present death and present life. You see, if you look at this word wages a little closer, 
I sense that Paul is actually more concerned with the present life than the life to come, like we usually use this verse. The, the, the word that Paul uses here is this Greek word, and I'm going to mess this one up as well. It's opisnia. I'm sure that's terribly wrong. Um, or wages. But it's used to describe the effects of sin. Now in the Roman times, in the context Paul was, was writing, each day a, a soldier would serve, they were given a ration of food for their service. And this word, I'm not going to say it again, is the word that they use to describe the wages for their work. So it doesn't refer to, to a large payment dispensed at the end of the soldier's years of service. Rather, it was something that was measured out to him every day, day after day after day. It's the present reality of life and death that's not just the future Paul is talking about here. It's the same thing that we saw in Romans chapter 1 where he talked about the wrath of God not just being God's righteous wrath and judgment in the end times but the present outworking of God's wrath against men and women demonstrated in the past of their life and as those who have rejected him. And Paul is warning here, us here that when we continue to walk in slavery to sin it results in death in our present lives. And I think it's pretty obvious if you look around the city and you look around our culture and even as you look into your own life, sin doesn't just affect your future. It wreaks havoc and brings brokenness and death into the present aspects of life. I think maybe a better translation of this verse would be the wages of sin is death in this life and the life to come. But the good news and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ, Jesus our Lord, in the present as well as in the future. You see, eternal life has to do with knowing God, not just in the future, but in the present. In John 17, Jesus told us this. He said, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It means the pursuit of holiness through obedience is coupled with joy and blessing. Eternal life is actually realizing the purpose that you and I were created for. And that purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It means that eternal life begins now when you trust in Jesus. We get to have eternal life in the moment when we believe in Jesus. And the more we discipline our lives to walk in obedience, it equals more life in the present. Which really begs the question, are you in Jesus? Is Jesus your Savior? You see, there's only two answers to that. It's either a yes or a no. There's only two. If you answer yes, are you living for him? If not, why not? I want to remind you the purpose of Romans 6 is to show you that you've been delivered from the bondage of sin by Jesus so that you might serve him. You are not autonomous. You are not completely free. You are bought with a price and a purpose and that purpose is actually life-giving. And if you're not being obedient, you're actually missing out on eternal life right now. If you answered no to that question, haven't you been trapped by sin long enough? It just equals death. 
Why are you willing to walk in a self-destructive pattern in the present and in the future? The good news is that Jesus offers life. And only Jesus can bring you out of death because he is the only one who has taken on death. He took on death and then he stood up and he walked out of the grave. And Jesus can save you. And he can give you life today and life in the future. We need to ask the question, who are we going to serve? You are a slave to something. Let's be slaves to the only one that actually gives life. Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, life is available. We thank you that we no longer have to be the walking dead, walking around thinking that we're, that we're in life and that we're in freedom when we're actually in slavery to sin. Father, may those that don't know you be called into your family and walk a new way. Father, those that you have already called, may you make us obedient. May you make us the servants that people look at and say, man, I want to learn from them. I want to walk a lifelong life of life because it is actually joy and abundant. Father, I pray as a church that you would make us an obedient people this year, that we would put away our laziness and walk in obedience and that we would walk in a new way in the city, and that you would change this city because of it. Father, we thank you that because of the resurrection, we have the hope of life now and in the future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.